more subscriber questions about the current stock market. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. For this second episode of Season 2, I'll continue with the Q&A I began last week. We'll start with Neil from Central Illinois, who wants to know how much recovery we need to recover our 9-SIG plans balance at the end of 2021. Hi, Jason. This is Neil from Central Illinois. I thought it was nice when you told us how much the NASDAQ 100 would have to rise for 9-SIG to break even again, i.e. return to the January 1st, 2021 balance. I would appreciate an update on that analysis again. I would also like to know how far the NASDAQ 100 will have to rise in order for our January 1st, 2021 balance to double by the end of 2023. This is what we would expect for two average years of 9-SIG at 40% per year. Is this a reasonable possibility for this year? Thanks for your weekly letter. All the best. Neil. I've monitored this for all three of our growth plans since last year's Note 40 sent October 16th, 2022. The latest installment, sent to subscribers last Sunday, showed the following. Fund performance requirement per 369 plan to regain the December 31st, 2021 balances. 3SIG needs IJR to rise 16.3%. 6SIG needs MVV to rise 14.8%. And 9SIG needs TQQQ to rise 171%. There's the answer to the first part of your question, Neil. As of last weekend, 9SIG's stock fund required a 171% recovery in order for our 9SIG plan to regain its December 31st, 2021 balance. That may feel discouraging, but let's dig into some hopeful details. The first is how quickly fortunes can change in the 3X leverage world. For most of 9SIG's real-life history since inception six years ago in January 2017, it has risen powerfully. Setbacks were short, they triggered purchases at lower prices, and such opportunistic buying was quickly rewarded. A year ago, Fortuna's wheel spun downward in a big way, triggering wall-to-wall sell signals, which the letter's 9SIG plan could only partially afford. That's normal, part of backtesting, inevitable, entirely expected, and foretold repeatedly, but was nonetheless hard on some investors in the 9SIG plan. Notice, however, that when the line turns, it can do so powerfully, making the high performance requirement feel less out of reach. One week earlier, in this year's Note 2, sent to subscribers on January 8th, Our 9SIG plan required a 207% gain in its stock fund to regain that December 31st, 2021 balance. Five trading sessions later, that requirement had dropped to 171%. That's a huge drop. It's a little less than one-sixth of the distance, implying that if the market kept rising for the next five weeks, as it did last week, our 9SIG plan would already have reached full recovery. Of course, the market won't do that, but it's nonetheless encouraging to see that the performance we need is not out of the question. It won't take all that much of a sustained recovery to get us back in the black, even in our most depressed plan at the moment. The second hopeful bit of of evidence here is that 9SIG is working 
Its system of moving more money into its stock fund when the price drops reduces the time to recovery because it reduces the plan's cost basis. We can see this most plainly by comparing the recovery required of its stock fund with the recovery required for the plan itself. They are as follows. 314% for the stock fund, 171% for the 9-SIG plan. The 9-SIG plan's distance to recovery is down to almost half, 54% to be specific, of what is required for its stock fund. How is this possible? Through our function of buying more at lower prices. We did that in last year's decline. Our cost basis is less than the fund's price on December 31st, 2021. We reach full recovery at just 54% of what is required for the fund to reach full recovery. This is part of the mathematical magic of our approach. Let's put it differently. If 9SIG's stock fund raced straight up to break-even without us selling any shares along the way, it would be sitting on a net gain of zero since December 31st, 2021, but our 9SIG plan would be sitting on a net gain of 53%. The next part of your question was, how far would the NASDAQ 100 need to rise in order for that December 31st, 2021 balance to double, actually you said 2022 balance to double by the end of 2023. And you, you then added that this is what we would expect from two average years of 9SIG at 40% per year and wondered, is this a reasonable possibility for this year? I have to reject your assumption that 9SIG's expected annual average performance is 40%. In some time frames, yes, but it's wrong to think of 9SIG as a plan that cranks out 40% annual returns reliably. I wish I could come up with that plan, <laughs> but I just haven't been able to, and 9SIG is not that either. We can distill any time frame to an average annual performance, but it's important to recognize that the individual years comprising the average will be all over the place. We don't need to look far for verification. The letters 9SIG plan rose 48.7% in 2021, but fell 68.2% in 2022, but is up 250.1% since inception. It's just all over the place. As expected and by design, it's important to reiterate, and I think it best to keep this in mind rather than reducing the extreme volatility to a clean annual average that may be mathematically sound, but can also be emotionally misleading. This is a very volatile plan. With that disclaimer duly stated, I'll move on to the calculation you asked about. Doubling our 9SIG plan's year-end 2022 balance by the end of this year, assuming we sold no shares on the way up, would require a NASDAQ 100 gain of about 33%, given our 3x leverage and our current all-in allocation. Is this reasonable? Most analysts would say no, but since when has the majority been right? Let's go through some years that saw the NASDAQ 100 return more than 33%, or close enough to make it uh, to that 33%, to make any 3x investor feel great. These are a list of 33%-ish plus years for the NASDAQ 100. Up 27% in 2021, up 48% in 2020, up 38% in 2019, up 32% in 2017, 
up 35% in 2013, up 54% in 2009, and up 49% in 2003. That's seven years in the past 20 with the kind of returns you're looking for, or 35% of the time. Not bad odds, really. Even more encouraging is that the index's best runs have generally followed setbacks, and it just had a setback in 2022. The Nasdaq 100 has seen only three negative years since 2002, the last year of the dot-com crash. The three were minus 42% in 2008, minus 1% in 2018, and minus 33% in 2022. 2008 and 2018 were followed by strong years. After 2008, the Nasdaq 100 rose 54% in 2009 and 19% in 2010. After 2018, it rose 38% in 2019 and 48% in 2020. Again, not bad odds. Bears would object that the Fed was on the market side after the subprime mortgage crash of 2008, but what would they argue about 2019? The Fed funds rate rose from near zero in November 2015 to 2.4% in January 2019. The Nasdaq 100 fell 1% in 2018, then soared in 2019. If anything, this pattern taken in isolation would suggest that a brisk recovery is in the offing because the Fed is coming off its aggressive hiking campaign, which cratered stocks last year, and should now do better in a less hawkish environment on the way. I mean, look at the similarities. In 2019, the Fed was also going into less hawkish territory, and the Nasdaq 100 rose 38%. There's a similarity that might be nice to see. But I don't do predictions, and this isn't one. Keep in mind that monetary policy has fluctuated throughout history. Booms and busts have happened, and through it all, stocks rose two-thirds of the time. I, I constantly pound the table on this. This is such an important historical reality to keep in mind. Through all the chattering and commentary, throughout all the calamities of history, which many of which are way bigger than anything we see in current times, stocks rose two-thirds of the time. It's why long-term investors win in the end. Over the past 20 years, for example, we saw subprime, the subprime mortgage crash, the worst financial crisis of my lifetime, the taper tantrum, a housing bubble, a debt ceiling standoff that caused America's first ever credit downgrade, the pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the Fed funds rate top out at five and a quarter percent and bottom near zero during this whole time frame of the past 20 years during which the NASDAQ 100 saw just three losing years, and last year was one of them, and the previous two were followed by giant gains. That's an 85% win rate. Again, not bad odds. But you know why none of this should be surprising? Because our plans didn't come from nowhere. They're built on market history. We knew and know these odds. Media chatter on, but the market is still doing what it's always done, and the smart thing to do is keep following rules built from history and automate the buying of low prices and the selling of high ones, as our formula does. Next came two questions about where to put money within our plans during this downturn. 
Nick from Denver wants to know about moving his income SIG plans bond allocation into the NASDAQ 100 at 3x leverage. Hello, Jason. This is Nick all the way from Denver. During like a big downturn like this for the income SIG plan, um, if you aren't super dependent on the dividends coming in from AGG specifically, like the smaller portion of the dividends from the income plan, um, would it make sense to move some more of AGG into TQQQ to kind of like kind of form like a hybrid nine sig slash income sig plan just so you're like you're taking more advantage of the lower prices when they're low like this. Um, so yeah, so that's my question. I also wanted to say a, a massive thank you, like really mean thank you. Um, the income sig plan for me was game changing. I actually have hope of retiring early and um, pursuing my hobbies, which are very non-profitable. <laughs> I am glad to hear it, Nick. Boy, retiring early sounds great. Thanks for thanks for telling me that. It's 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 encouraging, and especially to hear that after such a rough year. You're my kind of guy, and I like your instincts, Nick. In almost all cases, gravitating toward the low-priced asset is smart. It's what drives rebalancing's excellent track record. However. If a person is not dependent on income from income sig, why would they run income sig? If you're trying to grow your money, which the move you're contemplating suggests, then one of the growth plans would be better. Even so, I'll grant that it's possible that you generally do want income from the income sig plan for that early retirement, but you don't need it currently, and you want to make a smart move with the assets in front of you. If so, then yes, moving money from AGG to TQQQ makes sense when the latter is down 77% from its high. Do be aware that this will remove the safeguards of the income SIG plan. Its rules prevent it from becoming too exposed to TQQQ in case a downturn goes deeper and deeper. It's possible that you would move your safe AGG balance into TQQQ only to see it dwindle in another leg down. Doug from New Westminster, British Columbia, Canada, is trying to decide where to keep uninvested money these days. Hi, Jason. My name is Doug. I'm from New Westminster, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, my question to you is, with the market currently the way it is, am I better off to keep my currently uninvested signal reserve money in cash instead of bonds? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Bye for now. Thanks, Doug. A good question on many people's minds. I'm a fan of bonds in all time frames. Even last year, which was the worst year for bonds in decades, they kept money safer than the stocks kept it. In most time frames, they keep it much safer and can even show a profit when stocks decline. Because our plans move money into and out of their bond funds, we need not worry much about the price fluctuation of those bond funds. We benefit from lower prices when we buy shares of our bond funds, and we benefit from higher prices when we sell them. It works out in the wash, so we can ignore bond fund price change. Plus, more than 90% of a bond fund's long-term profit comes from its distributions, not price change. Basically, investors in my plans can ignore all media discussion of bonds and bond funds. It's irrelevant to the way we use bond funds. 
that's the way we use bond funds. Some people try to time in and out. We don't. Our, our moves are based entirely on price change, and there's just no reason for us to care. So I suggest keeping your uninvested money in general bond funds. Now, if interest rates kept climbing to extreme levels, it could eventually make sense to use money market funds instead, but we're nowhere close to that. The last time the money market would have been better was in the early 1980s, following the stagflation of the 1970s. At their peak in that cycle, money market mutual funds paid short-term yields of around 20%. Even then, however, it was short-lived and running our plans as intended with bond funds would have been just fine. Our next question is from Michelle Garner in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, whose brother is worried about the end of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Hey, Jason. This is Michelle Garner, originally Colorado location. Now I'm in Cape Cod, Massachusetts with my mom. A question for you. I'm not sure if you can answer this, but uh, my brother is talking about that with all the debt that the countries are going to start not wanting to use the U.S. dollar for trading, and therefore uh, it's going, you know, everything's going to crash, the market's going to crash, and basically the dollar is going to be worth nothing, and therefore all the money in the stock market's going to be worth nothing. So anyway, if you have heard anything about that or can bring that up as a question on the call, would love to hear your thoughts about it. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you, Michelle. You're not sure if I can answer this. Of course I can answer this. That's why you call my number with these kinds of questions. So buckle up. Here we go. This is a repeating bearish warning and as baseless today as it was every time I covered it in the past. I'm not sure why it holds such appeal, but it's easy to dismiss. I'll turn to last March 27th's note 13 as to why. From that letter's The Chase section, that's the upfront executive summary of each Sunday letter's contents, from The Chase of last year's Note 13, sent March 27, 2022, quote, It's back, the baseless alarm that the dollar will lose its reserve currency status. As ever, all you need to know is the following. The dollar will not lose its reserve currency status for a simple reason. There's nothing to take its place. End quote. The feature article in that note 13 was titled The Dollar's Reserve Currency Status. It began by referring back to the idea that there's nothing to take the dollar's place as reported in note 28 sent July 11th, 2021. Now, why do I refer back to so many previous references to this idea? To illustrate that it's nothing new, just an apparently evergreen bearish scare point. It comes up anytime there's a surge in government spending, a wave of fascism accusations, or a claim by hopeful Chinese analysts that a change of the international order is inevitable. I remember back in September 2020, Ray Dalio, who is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, believed that the dollar's reserve currency status was in jeopardy because of the measures the U.S. had taken to support its economy through the pandemic. Because Dalio is a big shot in the financial world, people said we should listen to him, a smart guy, and run from U.S. assets. I noted at that time that the U.S. had experienced social unrest for four months then, but the dollar had not so much as wobbled on its perch. 
The country had been hit by hurricanes, wildfires, and pandemic arguments, but not once had the reign of the dollar looked tenuous. I concluded, this is a quote from Note 28, sent July 11th, 2021, quote, Through the vicissitudes of politics, social movements, and technological innovation, the Federal Reserve has remained a rock of stability. It even withstood direct attacks on its legitimacy by presidents demanding accommodative policies, and not just from the current administration. It is one of America's most reliable institutions, indeed one of the world's. Its steady hand on the tiller is not something the world will easily abandon. End quote. In 2021, data from the International Monetary Fund showed global foreign exchange reserve composition to be as follows. Hold on a second here. Okay, 2021 global foreign exchange reserve composition in percent. U.S. dollar, 60. Euro, 20. Other, 10. Yen, 6. Pound sterling, 4. It's a long way from 60 to no longer being the reserve currency. A long way. The contender in second place is all the way down at 20. And is a basket case of a currency by comparison. From note 28, quote, Europe is in constant turmoil, a clash of cultures that fails to unite punctilious Germany with freewheeling Greece. Durability of the currency bloc is forever in doubt, a risk more perilous than another batch of Congress critters at the purse strings. End quote. Oh, but what about China? People ask. China. China is the most overhyped potential economic leader of all time. It's miles away from being able to lead the world on much of anything, but certainly when it comes to reliable currency reserves. Again, from note 28. Quote, China? Forget it. The mandarins in charge engage in so much financial flim-flammery and opaque reporting that the renminbi could never cut it as the world's chief currency. They don't even have enough confidence to let it float freely on the exchange market. You and I will stand at the great ATM in the sky before the People's Bank of China garners as much respect as the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank. The renminbi accounts for 3% of central bank reserves, which is about 2.9 percentage points too high, in my view. End quote. On top of all this, people just plain misunderstand the implications of currency strength and weakness. At first blush, it seems we should not want dollar weakness, right? We should want a strong dollar. Wrong. You know what was considered one of the drivers of last year's stock market crash? Dollar strength. That's right. It wasn't higher interest rates per se, but their resulting dollar strength. Bulls said that the chart to watch for a turning point in the stock market was the U.S. dollar in hopes of it, wait for it, weakening. Last year, from January 3rd to its peaks in September and October, the dollar rose 18% against the euro and 30% against the yen. The October 3rd cover of Bloomberg Businessweek read, Can't stop, won't stop. The Fed has turned the U.S. dollar into a wrecking ball, and there's no end in sight to the carnage. What's that? A strong dollar was the wrecking ball? Yes, a too strong dollar is a problem and was one of last year's biggest worries. 
October CPI killed that dollar rally, sending it lower ever since, really. And it might have been commentary on that that caught your brother's attention, Michelle. It certainly caught the attention of many bearish analysts, which is funny because they had previously said dollar strength was the problem. <laughs> Last November 10th, Barron's reported on why the weakening dollar should bode well for stocks. Quote, a falling dollar reduces the purchasing power of Americans traveling abroad, but investors are likely cheering the fall. For one, it means that companies that derive revenue from abroad will see higher profits when they convert sales and in international currencies into the greenback. In the S&P 500, some 30% of company revenue is earned abroad. Secondly, if the reaction to inflation data leads to a sustained downward move for the dollar, it could also suggest that investors' concerns about the economy are diminishing. Global investors tend to rush to havens like gold and the dollar when their concerns about macroeconomic issues rise. End quote. And Michelle, your brother mentioned high U.S. debt as a possible reason for the world to reject the dollar as its reserve currency, but this is another old issue that has yet to matter. Very old, actually. But you know what? Actually, before I get to that, I, I feel like I haven't properly wrapped up this, this weakening dollar thing. When Americans hear that the dollar is weakening, they sometimes rush to, oh my gosh, this is the end of the country. If, if the dollar is going away, that means everything I own is going away and the country is slipping into the mud. And it must be because of this runaway debt. We are, we are sinking under an enormous weight of debt. But it's just not how the factors work. People don't get this. I will get to that debt more in a moment. But, but as far as investors are concerned, when, when the dollar weakens, it doesn't mean in absolute terms that the dollar itself is going away. That piece of paper in your hand or those, those, those numbers in your bank account are going to diminish. That's not what it means when we talk about a weaker dollar. It means that the dollar doesn't buy as much of other currencies. They're just fluctuating against each other, right? It's weakening against what? Absolute value? There is no such thing. A weaker dollar means a stronger yen. A stronger yen against the dollar means a weaker dollar. And guess what? If you are selling things in Japan, for example, you hope that the dollar is weak so that when you bring all those yen back to the United States, your profits are that much higher when converted into dollars. Now, last year, people either visiting Japan or living in Japan were jumping for joy. I should phrase this very carefully. People who use U.S. dollars, either Americans or others, who were in Japan either visiting or living there, were jumping for joy last year and still are to a certain extent because the dollar became so strong. You could take money out of an ATM in Japan, it comes out as yen, but if it was coming out of your American bank account, instead of, of, of 100,000 yen taking out $1,000 back in the States, it would take out only $800 or $750. So it was a very direct comparison. Wow, the dollar is strong. So with only $750, I can buy 100,000 Japanese yen. You could do that at any ATM in Japan. So then when we go back the other way, you can see why American companies, which drive the U.S. stock market, would be quite thrilled if it suddenly became, oh, when I take my 100,000 yen back to Japan, instead of it getting me only $750, it gets me $1,200. 
So always keep that in mind. When we talk about a strong dollar, a weak dollar, we are not talking about absolute terms. We are talking about its, its relative value to other currencies. And there are many different ways this is good and bad. In the case of U.S. stocks specifically, which is what your brother was worried about, Michelle, and other U.S. assets, a weaker dollar can be very good because when money is brought back from overseas, it's worth more in that weaker U.S. dollar. Okay. Now, Michelle, your brother also mentioned high U.S. debt as a, as a, a possible reason for the world to reject the dollar as its reserve currency. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is another old issue that has yet to matter, and it is actually quite old. America's national debt has been rising my whole life, my whole life. And I was born in 1971. It's been called a crisis in the offing ever since I paid attention starting in the 1980s. I was a nerd of a high school student. So far, so good, though, right? This high and rising debt has not cratered anything. And people who were betting against stocks since the 1980s, betting against the dollar, betting against America due to this insane level of debt, must be lovers of long, long odds. And going forward, it's the same way. To be clear, I agree in spirit. The national debt is out of control. I, too, wish responsible politicians controlled the purse strings. But they never have and never will, and sovereign debt, which is to say country debt, is simply not the same as household debt. This is the reason people don't understand it. They think of national debt like a credit card balance, but it's not. The country makes the money that's used to repay the debt. Talk about a key difference. By chance, I covered U.S. federal debt just last Sunday in this year's Note 3 when I looked at the debt ceiling debacle on tap courtesy of House Republicans led by new Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Drawing on data from Federal Reserve Economic Data, that's FRED, run by the St. Louis Fed, I reported U.S. federal debt in trillions of dollars, 14.7 in 2011. 16.0 in 2012, 16.9 in 2013, 17.8 in 2014, 18.3 in 2015, 19.5 in 2016, 20.1 in 2017, 21.4 in 2018, 22.5 in 2019, 26.1 in 2020, 28.7 in 2021, 31.4 in 2022. That last figure, 2022, was an estimate from Statista because it's not available at FRED yet. Yet, in 2021, the U.S. dollar still comprised 60% of global foreign exchange reserves. You might think, well, it must have collapsed last year. No, what happened to it last year? It stayed right around 60%. I have a report from the Congressional Research Service dated September 15th, 2022, titled The U.S. Dollar as the World's Dominant Reserve Currency. From that report, quote, The dollar has functioned as the world's dominant reserve currency since World War II. Today, central banks hold about 60% of their foreign exchange reserves in dollars. About half of international trade is invoiced in dollars and about half of all international loans and global debt securities are denominated in dollars. In foreign exchange markets where currencies are traded, dollars are involved in nearly 90% of all transactions. 
The dollar is the preferred currency for investors during major economic crises as a safe haven currency. During the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, for example, and amidst the economic turmoil associated with the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic in 2020, investors sought U.S. dollars expecting the dollar to retain its value. In both crises, the U.S. Federal Reserve adopted extraordinary monetary authorities and currency swap lines with other central banks to provide liquidity and dollars, end quote. There's just nothing to take the dollar's place, high federal debt notwithstanding. And you know why? Because other countries are in just as much debt as the U.S. It's not a uniquely American situation. People are people and governments are a drag everywhere. (laughs) It's just human nature. When you're in charge of money that's not your own, you go wild with it. When you're representing interests that demand things of you and you want to keep getting elected, you, you fork out the cash. So U.S. debt to GDP is about 125%. Japan's is 225%. Italy's is 150%. The European European Union's overall debt to GDP is 86%. Here we go. China's is 80%. People sometimes say only 80%. Well, it's at least 80%, but probably higher when we account for China's constant lying in its reports. Nikkei Asia reported on December 7th, 2022, so just last month, in a story headlined, China's debt ratio hits record high at three times GDP, the following. Quote, China's debt as a percentage of its economy hit a fresh high at the end of June, with local authorities borrowing heavily to underpin an economy weighed down by the central government's zero COVID policy. The U.S., China's main geopolitical rival, saw its debt-to-GDP ratio temporarily top China's in late 2020 and early 2021. But the ratio has since fallen, coming in more than 30 points below China's at the end of June, amid an economic recovery as well as interest rate hikes that have hit the brakes on borrowing. America's future growth prospects also look brighter, thanks partly to immigration expanding its population. End quote. Which brings us full circle back to the main reason we need not worry about this issue. The dollar will not lose its reserve currency status for a simple reason. There's nothing to take its place. That's been the case since World War II, and it's still the case. To recap, the dollar reserve's currency status is not threatened. The stability of the Federal Reserve and America's economic transparency have no peers. High federal debt doesn't matter because potential rival currencies come from other high debt places. Dollar weakness relative to other currencies is no problem for stocks and, in fact, is usually the preferred condition. A threat to American finances bigger than the debt is the absurd debt ceiling debacle used by showboating politicians. Another one of these is on the way this year but is not going to dislodge the dollar from its perch. Debt ceiling games are more of a problem for treasuries due to questions they raise about the nation's creditworthiness. All for nothing whatsoever, I hasten to add. In short, the dollar's position in global finance is secure. Therefore, it represents no threat to the U.S. economy or U.S. stock market. Michelle, please assure your brother that he can disregard this non-risk. 
Finally, a comment from Kent Lacey in Old Lyme, Connecticut, about the world's unpredictability and the importance of controlling emotions and sticking with historical trends. Kent Lacey calling from Old Lyme, Connecticut. You know, what's going on in the bear market in the world? Um, Is the Fed going to overreact? The world's an unpredictable place. Governments are sort of overreaching, trying to fix everything and mostly not doing well. Pretty much what's going on, in my opinion, is we can't control any of that stuff as investors. So I think the most important question is none of that. But the most important question is, how do you keep the investors sane and confident and happy and, you know, play the averages that over time this will all work out? It really is controlling the uh the temperament of the investors and not so much what's going on around us. That all averages out over time. Here, here. I couldn't agree more, Kent. I used to pick stocks and forecast the market. Even when I was right, I realized I was just playing a game and could have as easily been wrong. There was no point to it. What I needed was a rules-based approach built on historical trends. That's what I came up with. It's all I run today, and I have never looked back. Thank you for being part of it, Kent, and other callers as well. Subscribers, feel free to call the number I email to leave a voicemail message with a question anytime. This is a benefit of subscribing to the letter. Thank you for listening. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. Please subscribe to the podcast from any of the links at jasonkelly.com to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. Don't forget, I write an investing newsletter every Sunday. This is a great time to join the Kelly Letter. Prices are still low, but the market has been rising since the start of the year. and Quite a powerful rise, actually. Please become a Kelly Letter subscriber today at jasonkelly.com to start your own market-beating SIG plans over the long term. Oh, and you'll get the phone number to call and leave a question for a future episode just like this one. Current subscribers, thank you for doing business with me. I'll see you Sunday.